you've called us to go and do likewise. To likewise love like the Samaritan. Actually, to likewise love like you. Jesus, I pray that we would get a glimpse of your love for us. Lord, so that we would know that from this day forth, it is safe to love others unreservedly, without holding anything back. Because with your love, who or what could be against us? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. First of all, let me just say it is a great honor to be with you this morning and a privilege. Your worship is beautiful. I hope I don't mess it up too much. I really do. (laughs) I'm trying. I promise. Um, No, it is wonderful to be here with you and to worship with you this morning. So I grew up... uh, you may be familiar with the town, maybe not. A small town called Wairika in Northern California. You've probably never heard of it. It's a small town on the outskirts, actually, of Wairika that is the place that I grew up in a town called Grenada. And we own 20 acres of land. We happen to own just about 20 acres of land. And my dad's favorite pastime on this land was to plant things all over the place. He had vegetables. He had strawberries, and he had random trees all over the property. It's not like we had a farm. We definitely didn't have a farm. It was just stuff that he randomly planted by hand. Now, whether it survived or not was a different story. In fact, most of what he planted never made it. Um, And I'm, I'm not entirely sure why he did it, to tell you the truth. Maybe he thought if he was ever hungry as he was working in a corner of the field or in the corner of the property, he might be able to grab some berries or an eggplant and snack on it. I really don't know what he was thinking. To this day, I don't know. Of course, I've never really asked him. Maybe I should. But whatever the reason for it all, the thing that I remember most was that there was this row of these beautiful plum trees. And Dad must have planted them when I was very young because I remember them always being around. The plum trees were actually personal favorites of mine. In fact, I used to watch them closely throughout the year, and I actually became really good at determining when they had reached their ripeness, their peak ripeness, the perfect time of which you should pick them off and eat them. You see, I learned early on, though, that it was vital to wait until the plums reached their peak ripeness, Because if you ate one before it was ripe, it was hard. It was hard, it was bitter and sour and just not very inviting at all. But if you could wait, as I could hardly do each year, then when you pick that plum, it is the perfect royal deep black cherry color. It is beautiful. It's tender to the touch. And as you bite into it, the plum juice just drips down out of your mouth, onto your shirt, and to the ground below. It's wonderful. It's sweet, but not too sweet. 
It's a beautiful yellow, red, and orange marble color inside. The fruit is utter relief, especially on a hot California summer day. It was an inviting, hospitable piece of glory to all who enjoyed them, and many others did. See, friends and neighbors alike also became aware of our plum trees. And we gave them away in bags. I had neighbors stop by on their way to their house and would pluck one or two and eat them on the way home. As a little kid, those plums truly were a piece of welcomed paradise, something that I celebrated each year. And I tell you this story not to make us hungry for plums, although it might have done that. But because as I read Paul's letter to the Colossians, I couldn't help but to connect my excitement as a kid over the fruit produced annually by those plum trees with Paul's delight and joy when he hears of the fruit coming in season within the church of Colossae. At the beginning of the letter, we learned that a fellow by the name of Epaphras, or Epaphras, however you decide to um, pronounce his name, Epaphras has reported to Paul, probably while Paul is in prison even. And he's reported to Paul all about the Colossians. He reports that the gospel has been planted in Colossae and it has taken root. But more than that, this church is already producing fruit, Paul. It's exciting news. The gospel is bearing fruit all over the place by now in the rest of the world, but also now in Colossae, Paul exclaims. This is exciting for Paul. And what's interesting is what he focuses on when he mentions them bearing fruit. He doesn't tell them how he was impressed to hear of their ability to unpack and exegete the scriptures. But of course, Paul would want that for them. Those are good things. But neither does Paul and his his excitement celebrate their ability to attract new members to the church. Again, a good thing. But he isn't moved and delighted because of the way they are exceedingly gifted either. They have, like they have pastors who preach powerfully and music that lifts them into the places of glory. Nor did he even say he's heard of their strict new moral behavior. Though he certainly would love to see all of them become obedient to God in all areas of their life. Now, it is entirely possible at the same time that they did exhibit all of these excellent things. But the point is, Paul does not mention these things. He does not mention these things. It wasn't the thing to him. It wasn't the fruit that stopped him in his tracks to say a hearty amen and dance in circles with delight. That wasn't it. No, instead, the fruit that Paul puts his finger on is the key thing. It is the first thing, the most important sign of life in the Christian and in the church. He points to the fruit that is above all other fruit. 
Paul is delighted to hear that the Colossians are bearing the fruit of love. Love. Epaphras has told us about your love, Paul writes. He has spoken of your love in the Spirit. You see, that's the sign of life in the Christian, in the Christian community. That's the fruit Paul celebrates here. Love in the Spirit. When the gospel is planted in us, we produce the fruit of love. Now, for many of us, it can take years for that fruit to fully ripen. For us to truly love the other well, it can take a long time. But Paul is excited because he's seeing it immediately in Colossae. You see, just as I knew when the plums on our property were in season, Paul knew when love was present in the Christian community. And he rejoices at the news that the fruit of love is in the Colossians church. The thing is, though, Paul didn't need a superpower to recognize that the Colossians were bearing love, right? He didn't need some super insight to be able to tell that. You see, we too know the difference between love that is in season and when it is not. Like a ripened or unripened piece of fruit, a plum for instance, we know love when we experience it. For instance, when love is unripened or it is out of season within a person, we will often find a person who just isn't suitable for being around other people. Maybe some of us know someone like that. You know, you go somewhere with them and you always kind of cringe a little bit when they speak to the waiter or the waitress. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like an unripened plum, though, they are not yet shareable, are they? For just as one, just as no one can enjoy an unripened plum, it can be terribly difficult to enjoy an unloving person. It just is. It's a burden often. Because like an unripened plum, unloving people tend to produce a fruit that is bitter inhospitable, and they tend to have an overall hardness of heart, even toward those they may call friends and family. What's more, like an unripened plum, such a person can often be self-absorbed, only caring about getting their needs met, drawing in nutrients while rarely having the capacity or ability to give of themselves. Think again of the plum that is yet to ripen. It can only take in nourishment. It's only useful for taking nourishment when it is unripened. Because it isn't yet ready in its development to be nourishment for others. So is it true with the immature Christian. There is a lack of other-centeredness because maturation is still necessary. 
and what the scriptures say is that the main reason we are often unfit or unable to love others well has something to do with fear. We're afraid. We struggle to love others because of fear. Fear is what keeps love from ripening to its full potential. Fear, in fact, acts as a growth to turn to all sorts of sanctification. And more often than not, fear gets manifested through the what-if question when it comes to loving others. What if? What if I love this person and they don't love me back, though? What if I stop to help this person, but they treat me poorly or even spout obscenities toward me? Maybe they get hostile. All I was doing was trying to help. What if they don't receive my love? What if they take me for granted? What if they take advantage of my love? What if? The fear of what, uh, what if is actually what drives the men in the parable of the Good Samaritan to avoid their fellow man dying on the side of the road. If you do a little bit of historical research on the priest and the Levite, you can understand a little bit of why or the what ifs they were asking when they came upon the man. The first was the priest. Right? He came by and probably said something like, Hey, gee, that poor fellow over there looks to be in bad shape. Maybe I'll help him. But then almost immediately, as he continued to consider the man and his need, fear crept in. And he went down the what-if trail, probably saying something like, But what if he's not a fellow Jew? can't help anyone if he's not a fellow Jew. It's hard to tell since he's been stripped of his clothing after all. And what if I help him and I find out that he's actually a horrible man? Well then I'll actually be blamed for helping him. (laughs) And I don't want that. What if the man is actually dead? Well then my priestly hands would be defiled and Oh no, he finally says, I'd best stay on the other side of the road. Likewise, a Levite approaches and sees the man laying there. And what makes the Levites passing by more difficult to take is that the Levite probably would have known the man if the man was Jewish, as we know he is being that he was likely a fellow pilgrim coming from the temple, like himself. Even still, even if he did know the man, the Levite Levite also asks, what if? It could be costly, helping him, saying something like, I don't have time for this. And what if he needs more help than what I'm willing or able to provide, right? 
if I get involved now, there may be no end to this man's need. I may have to help him and help him and help him. I may be on the hook for longer than I want to be. No, I better just act as though I didn't see him at all and just keep going. See, it's the seed of the gospel planted among thorn bushes. Just as love starts to rise to the surface, so do thorny and hostile vines that wrap around and entangle love with fear and the worries of life so that the fruit of love is suffocated before it even gets a chance to be shared. And yet this, dear people, is why Paul is so ecstatic, enthusiastic about the news from Epaphras. Epaphras. The Colossians are loving people. You see, Paul believes with John, St. John, that there is no fear in love. The two cannot exist together. And if there is love in the Colossians like he's seeing, then fear has gone out the window. For perfect love casts out fear, John tells us, right? Perfect love casts out fear. So Paul is excited because the gospel has taken root and the love of the Spirit is present. The Colossians are living out of God's love. And if so, If so, this means they are living and loving fearlessly, meaning that God's kingdom and His gospel is advancing and there is nothing that can stand against it. For the love of the Spirit, the love of God conquers all our fears. It is the love of God that causes the Christian to ask, not what if, Not what if, but instead ask, who's next? Who's next? Who do we love next? And this must mean then, by the way, that this fruit is not just for those who are easy to love, but also for those who aren't. The question, well, who is my neighbor? From the parable is a question that we ask, like the lawyer in the passage, whenever we're trying to determine for ourselves who is worthy of our love and who isn't. By the way, who is our neighbor, really? God says we are to love our neighbor, and we ask, who is that? And yet Jesus brilliantly answers the neighbor question with a parable that makes a Samaritan the hero. Now Samaritans, if you're not familiar with the history, were people hated by Jews. They were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish. They had their own beliefs about God and Torah. And they were hated by Jews. They were on the Jew do not love list. (laughs) And in fact, if you see one alone on the road, maybe hit them. (laughs) 
But just by making then the Samaritan the one who helps the Jew in trouble, Jesus is saying their hateless is null and void. He's boldly proclaiming that even those traditionally hated are worthy of God's love, and hence your love. Jesus is saying everyone in your life then is your neighbor. Even the people you don't like. So we don't actually get to ask the worth question then. Who's worthy of our love? It's not a question we get to ask in Jesus' mind, in his worldview. Instead, like God himself, we ask, who's next? Who's next? Is that not the heart of God? Who's next? Meaning our love is even extended to those whom the rest of the world would put on their do not love list. For we must remember, dear people, we must remember that none of us deserved love. And yet Jesus calls us neighbor, friend, and brother, and sister. Did we deserve it when our Lord loved us, leaving the heavenly realm to come to us, to then pour out his blood on the cross for our sake, to have him in his final, final moments laying on the cross thinking only of you when he finally announced, it is finished. Did you earn that? I didn't. There's no way I earned that. I couldn't earn that within a minute, let alone my entire life. No. Jesus asked, who's next? You see, love is no quid pro quo. It isn't merited. Love is no reward for something. Love is simply given or it isn't. So if we're asking if someone is worthy or not of our love, then we aren't loving at all. Love cannot be deserved, demanded of, or gotten through manipulation. That's something else entirely. <laughs> That's something actually far from love. Many of our emotional, relational ailments come from believing that love must be earned or deserved, don't they? Simply, if we are to love our neighbor as Jesus is calling us to, then it must be unconditional. For love is being given to even though you don't deserve it. Even though I don't deserve it. Meaning then that love is also for our enemies. Those whom we fear will take advantage of us and probably will. Those who desire harm to come our way. And those we've never even met. All our neighbors. Jesus bids us to love them all just as he loved us all. 
And since God is love, as we know from John, since God himself is love, it is actually through knowing him that we learn how to love the person next to us, our neighbor. And as you have it in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus gives us a picture through the Samaritan himself of what it looks like to love like God. It's a brilliant story. The Samaritan actually channels Jesus in this story. It's what Jesus would do. He channels Jesus and his love as he helps the hurt man on the road. The Samaritan is the picture of the love of God. And it looks like this, in my own words. The Samaritan is courageous. He doesn't fear the man or what may happen once he gives care to him. He just goes to him. The Samaritan allows his heart to be bent toward the man. Yes, sometimes our hearts have to be bent toward the neighbor. The Samaritan makes himself tender toward him, even as he discovers, no doubt, that this man is a Jew, someone who usually hates people like him, Samaritans. Being moved, though, with empathy and compassion, the Samaritan sacrifices his time, his resources, his wealth, and quite possibly much more. He reveals that a big part of love is sacrifice. Like a plum from my childhood, the Samaritan sets aside self-preservation to be a refreshing, hospitable source of life to the person next to him, to the person in front of him. And bearing fruit, the, this fruit of love, love like this, is possible for us too. If we are being nourished through the belief and the knowledge of God's love for us. For God's love allows us to let our guard down, to remove our defenses. His perfect love casts out our fear. Because when we know we have His love, we can answer the what-if questions. How? How do we answer the what-if questions? Well, what if they hurt me in return? How do we answer that? If God loves us, for you see, if God loves us, then who can be against us, right? As the scriptures tell us, what can separate us? For we are more than conquerors, and so on, as the scriptures reveal. With God's love, the what if question gets answered. What if is answered by saying, because God loves me and I am more than safe, even if. Because of God's love, I am more than safe, even if. And here's what I know. As Christians who are here today, and I believe we all are, and if not, welcome. <laughs> Would love to talk to you about your 
Christianity and, and Jesus. Be a great conversation. But as Christians here today, I know that the desire of love for your neighbor is in you. I know that you feel it even now. I know this because you have the spirit of love within you, God's spirit in you. You have a desire then to be softer toward those around you, to lose the rough edges that you have, and to grow from sour to sweet, from dry and uninviting to being a refreshing relief for whomever is next to you. I know that's what you want. I know we all want that. We all desire to throw off the the thorny vines that are choking us with fear and the what-if questions that keep us from going there, from going to Him or them or her. I know we want this. We want to love. We want to love more. And the next step is to be courageous and do it. to dive courageously deep into the love of God where we have absolutely nothing to lose by loving our neighbors full out because Jesus has already given us everything. He has already loved us. We have an inheritance coming. What could you lose now by loving another person that you won't get when His heavenly kingdom returns. The gospel has taken root in us, just as it did in Colossae. And now it is time to defeat fear by trusting in God's love for us so we can bear the fruit of love to whomever is next to us, becoming then like plums in season for our neighbors. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we need your spirit to quicken our hearts, to soften and tenderize us, to continue to ripen us toward love that is in the manner of you, in the manner of the Samaritan. Lord, we long for it. It's in our heart. We want it because your spirit is in us, because the God of love is reigning there. And so, Lord, continue to pull us all the more in that direction. Bend our hearts. Tenderize us. May we not ask or at least limit the amount of times we ask the what if question. Instead, let us ask, okay, God, who's next? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.